You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, and this week uh, we'll be playing a little shorthanded. I'm Rick Goslin, along with Ron Borges. But we'll be without the third amigo today, Clark Judge, who is in a deep funk and still in mourning over the Patriots' stunning home loss last Sunday to the Carolina Panthers. Clark doesn't handle failures by his New England Brady's very well, does he, Ron? (laughs) No, let me tell you. Clark makes Tom Brady look like a willing loser, which he is not. (laughs) The only guy out of that locker room faster on Sunday than Tom Brady was our boy Clark. Unfortunately, he went over his skis or at least over the front of his bike on the way home. (laughs) So he's on the IR, but he'll be back. Uh, the defending AFC champion Patriots weren't the only NFL power to lose in shocking fashion at home last weekend. The defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons also lost, as did the defending NFC's champion Cowboys. After a month, there is only one team still unbeaten. Ron, is this the definition of parody or just a lot of bad football being played? <laughs> well, you know, Goose, uh, I've always felt parody is just another way of saying, saying uh, mediocrity without upsetting the paying customers. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't play good football if they won't let you practice football. In training camp and exhibition games have now really become a joke. So the start of the regular season is now really extended uh, training camp. So by the time they sort out how to play and who to play, half the season's gone and, uh, you know, Upsets abound as 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 they have uh, in the first few weeks. Uh, you know, there's to me there's two forms of parity today. One is parity of the teams that have a qualified quarterback, and the other is parity with ones who don't and should go hire Colin Kaepernick. And last weekend everything went out the window, and I'm not sure who belongs where. <laughs> well, we've got another good show for you this week, and it will be labor intensive. This is the third installment of our four week series commemorating the NFL strike of 1987. Our guest will be Dick Bertelson, who served as legal counsel for the NFLPA when the players walked out that year. We'll also have Cyrus Mary, who is challenging the current union leadership and his executive director, Demora Smith. Les Snead, the general manager of the surprising Los Angeles Rams, also will stop by, as will David Spada, who wrote the book Talking Football, which features interviews with 133 Pro Football Hall of Famers. He sure has some tales for us. We'll talk more labor strife as we get into the show, but first, we're going to explore the sudden demise of the defending Super Bowl champion Patriots. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, and Ron, let's cut directly to the chase. Let me take you back four weeks ago. The defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots were sitting atop everyone's preseason power pole. The talk up your way was that on paper this may be the best team Bill Belichick has ever fielded. I even heard speculation of a perfect season. That was Clark. Well, <laughs> Great. Four games into the season, the champs find themselves 2-2 two and two and chasing the Buffalo Bills in the AFC East. So, Ron, what the heck has happened up Boston Way? <laughs> well, I think it's a combination of some overblown expectations and, and a bad spending plan. Uh, you know, Belichick wanted to make his defense younger. He gambled $65 million on uh, Stephon Gilmore uh, when uh, Malcolm Butler wouldn't take uh, really an undervalued uh, contract. Um, 
And then Butler, who was a restricted free agent, which in the NFL means you're not a free agent at all, uh, he went and visited the Saints and, the, and learned that they were willing to pay him $50 million if Belichick would trade him, which he refused to do. Guess what? He's back and unhappy. <laughs> Meanwhile, Gilmore's here, underproducing, making a lot of mistakes, as he did last week, mental mistakes. Uh, and then he tried to go younger up front, traded a second-round pick to get Coney Ely. And problem is, he didn't make the team. <laughs> Meanwhile, he low-ball veteran Allen Branch, a defensive tackle who's been a very productive for him for the previous two years. He had to take the money. Well, he shows up looking like the Goodyear blimp. <laughs> Guess what? He's on the bench. He'd be sitting next to Coney Ely, but Ely plays for the Jets. Uh, you know, so you know that's sort of where it's been. And I think uh, the trading of, of Jamie Collins last year, which may or may not have you know propelled them uh, forward in the short term, I think has has hurt them too, because they have no explosive. Uh, game-changing player on defense. Chandler Jones is in Arizona, and Collins is in Cleveland. Those were the two closest they had. And if you don't have those kind of players, it's hard to win. Okay, five key pieces are gone for the 2016 championship team. Running back, Garrett Blunt. Tight end, Martellus Bennett. Cornerback, Logan Ryan. All those guys left for free agency. Linebacker, Rob Ninkovich, retired. And, of course, wide receiver, Julian Edelman, suffered a season-ending knee injury in camp. Which of those five do the Patriots miss the most? I think it's Edelman just because, you know, he was a third-down conversion machine. Uh, and, and they've had, you know, a number of instances here where they've failed on third downs, even third and short, had to go for it on fourth down. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. Uh, you know, his absence. He's one of those guys, Goose, and you've seen a million of them during your mm-hmm. career. If it's third and seven, he catches the ball at eight. Right. They got guys who catch the ball at six. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Bill Belichick is considered one of the great defensive minds of all time, and Matt Patricia, his defensive coordinator, interviewed for NFL head coaching vacancies in the offseason. So what's happened to that think tank? They've given up more yards and more points than any team in the league this season. They're on a pace to allow 512 points, the worst defense ever to reach the Super Bowl was the 2008 Cardinals, and they shredded only 426 points. Can this mess be fixed before January? Well, that's a damn good question. Up, you know, in New England, that's a, that's all they're talking about uh, this week for sure. And look, history says they will because they've done it in the past, but the problems haven't been quite as severe. Uh, you know, as they say in the financial business, uh, prior success does not guarantee future success. <laughs> you know, so don't sue me. Uh, you know, when you see as as I did in the Carolina game on Sunday, three long pass plays in which. There were two different receivers completely uncovered. I don't mean like got bit. I mean like where did those guys go? Three times. That tells you that 25 I mean uh, uh, 50% roughly of their secondary didn't know what they were doing. I don't know how you how quickly you can correct that. Not good. Okay. Tom Brady has always been the great equalizer, the guy who could erase any and all mistakes by the Patriots. Are we going to reach a point this season where the burden becomes too heavy, even for too heavy, even for Brady to carry? Well, that's a good question because you know I began to call him the parish priest because he absolves many sins, <laughs> uh, you know. But even the some sins, even the parish, even the Pope can't absolve something. Man, you're stuck with them, uh, and that may be the case here. I think history tells you that you know, when they asked Peyton Manning to do too much with the Colts, what happened? Made mistakes, failed, they yeah. lost. Brett Favre in Green Bay, same thing. Drew Brees for most of his career. Way too much uh, uh, was put on his shoulders. You don't win. The list goes on. The more you ask of the quarterback, the greater chance he can't deliver or he makes mistakes trying to force things or he gets hurt. 
Right now, Tom Brady is on pace to be sacked 52 times. Ouch. If that pace continues, I don't think he's going to be around at the end of the season to absolve any sins. Yeah. So have the Patriots cracked the door for the Bills in the East, or is this just another tease? Remember the last time they started 2-2 two and two was 2014, and they did go on to win the Super Bowl that year. Well, you know, Goose, when I hear you say crack the door for the Bills, you know, after what I've seen in the last 20 years, you just sort of laugh and say, I don't think so. But, you know, there's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I do think the Patriots have uh, more serious issues than people thought and more ser- serious issues than they've faced in the past. Uh, but I also think in the end the Bills are going to be the Bills and the Jets will be the Jets. And, and these are not Jim Kelly's Bills. They're Tyron Taylor's <laughs> Bills. Uh, you know, the, and, and the Dolphins forget about it. You know, so, I mean, I think the division is a joke, so I think they win, but not with the same sort of authority that gets them home field advantage in the playoffs. Ron, we're going to shift our focus now from the Patriots to a guy who's been overlooked far too long for the Pro Football of Fame. I'm talking about former Falcons guard Bill Fralick, an all-decade blocker who enters his final year of modern-era eligibility, still looking for his first appearance as a finalist. He was the subject of this week's State Your Case on our Talk of Fame network site, www.talkoffamenetwork.com. And here's his case. Freelich entered the NFL with the greatest of expectations. The Atlanta Falcons drafted Freelich with the second overall pick of the 1985 draft. Only one offensive tackle in the history of the NFL had gone higher. Hall of Famer Ron Yeri, who went first overall to the Minnesota Vikings in 1968. Yeri, of course, had the good fortune of being drafted by a team on the verge of becoming an NFL power. The Minnesota Vikings would win 10 division titles and go to four Super Bowls during Yeri's 14-year career. He was rewarded for his play and that of his team, claiming a bust in Canton in 2001. Freilich had the misfortune of being drafted by a bad team, the Falcons. His talent was evident as Freilich lived up to the draft type. He became a walk-in starter right guard, and his blocking was instrumental in an NFL runner-up 1,700-yard rushing season by Gerald Riggs. That earned Freilich a spot on the NFL All-Rookie team. Riggs followed that up with a 1,300-yard season in 1986, and Freilich was voted first-team All-Pro and went to the first of his four consecutive Pro Bowls. In 1988, Freilich and the Atlanta blocking front paved the way for a 1,000-yard season by John Settle, who became the first undrafted rookie in NFL history to rush for 1,000 yards. But for all, for all the success the Falcons had running the ball, they couldn't win games. In Freilich's first six seasons, Atlanta managed to win only 27 of its 95 games. The Falcons finally posted a wing season in the seventh year, going 10-6 and six for a playoff berth, then slid right back to their losing ways in 1992 with a 6-10 to finish. The only knock on Freilich's career is the lack of team success. But almost 68% of everyone enshrined in Canton owns a championship ring. Freilich does not. Now, if you're Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, or Stephon Curry, a guard can have a huge impact on the success of his team. But this isn't basketball. This is football where guards do not find their names on the marquee. But as a run blocker who paved the way for three different thousand-yard rushers and was voted one of the best guards of his era by the same Pro Football Hall of Fame selection committee, Freilich deserves to have his own candidacy discussed, debated, and voted upon. This looms as his final chance. Well, clearly, uh, you know, Freilich deserves, uh, as you point out, Goose, uh, a full airing. But we all know, you know, how few guards there are in the, in the hall to start off with. Uh, how, and how does a guy who played on teams that never win cut through all of that, uh, all the noise about certain Hall of Famers and all of that talk, um, 
you know, how, how does it happen? I mean, we're looking at Alan Fanica, and he hasn't been able to get in yet and, you know, has a sterling record both as a player and, and team-wise. So can it happen? Ron, we talk about this every week in the show. If you are a player that does not have stats and does not have a ring, you are a long shot for Canton. And Bill Freilich fell through the cracks so quickly. I mean, to be eligible for 24 years and never having your case discussed when you are an all-decade player. I mean, it's criminal. It, 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 it's a shame that we only look at the players that won championships. I mean, Gene Upshaw, guard, he's in. He won titles. Uh, Billy Shaw with the Bills won, won titles. Uh, guards that win get in. Guards that don't, don't have much of a shot, and that's Bill Freelich. We're going to break for a commercial now, but when we return, we'll be visiting with Cyrus Mary about his plans for the NFLPA. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Cyrus Mary is a longtime consumer rights and workplace discrimination lawyer, who was the co-founder of the Fritz Pollard Alliance. In 2002, he co-wrote with Johnny Cochran a study on the problem of black coaches in the NFL, pointing out that black head coaches were less likely to be hired and more likely to be fired than their white counterparts, uh, despite winning a higher percentage of games. Out of that grew the Rooney Rule, which Cyrus uh, also helped frame. Uh, he's been uh, universally credited for the growth of opportunities for black coaches in the NFL. In 2015, a form of that rule, I believe, was adopted by the English Football Leagues. And uh, he recently announced his plans to run against incumbent uh, NFLPA Executive Director DeMora Smith, only to learn ballot box closed. So, uh, Cyrus, we'd like to talk to you about this whole uh, election process with the union and welcome you to our sure. show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh when did you first decide the union needed a new director, and, and why did you choose to uh, at least try to run? Sure. Uh, well, it took several months leading to our announcement, which we made on Real Sports on August 22nd. And the turning point for me was talking to a number of Hall of Famers who really saw uh, a collision course between the management and labor and the kind of failure of the NFLPA to do, be a strong advocate and an effective advocate for players. So I came to it very humbly uh, with their support, but I also studied it very carefully and realized that players deserve better, that they deserve a fair uh, collective bargaining agreement, and they got really essentially hammered in 2011, and that I felt that there was also a very different set of values because – I've spent my career fighting for workers, leveling the playing field, trying to uh, help labor unions to use creative approaches to uh, get management to the table in good faith. And I felt that there's a lot that we have to offer as an alternative to what was there and to give the players choices, new ideas, and so that they can, you know, determine their destiny. Uh, we also learned that in 2015, the incumbent was, uh, barely was able to get reelected and was almost unseated, uh, particularly from one of the internal candidates who was a, a member of the staff at the NFLPA. And so, you know, there was a certain amount of unhappiness and that we felt that we could offer something that's very progressive, very far-sighted, and um, would really empower NFL players. Cyrus, how did you learn the normal election process every three years had changed, and how was it changed? Well, thanks for asking. Out of respect to Eric Winston, the president of the NFLPA, I 
uh, schedule a dinner with him the night that The Real Sports was going to air because I wanted to be sure that he heard it from me directly in person and wasn't blindsided in any way. Um, but it turns out that the uh, he was part of an effort that really blindsided the whole NFL community because no one knew, and by no one I mean the vast majority of NFL players, their families, their advisors, the 2,000 NFL reporters, no one knew that very quietly and without posting on the website or making it available that they had amended their constitution to make it far less democratic and make it so that there's a, a kind of a, a rubber stamp process to reelect the incumbent or select the incumbent uh, without competition, which was to me very ironic when you consider that NFL is about competition. These guys worked so hard to get to NFL level from high school being the best or college being the best and competing every day to make the team stay on the team, help their team win. The competition is a core. And yet there was this kind of secret constitutional amendment that would strip the players from benefiting from competition, strip them of their choices, strip them of their ability to control the destiny. And whoever wins the uh, executive directorship really shapes the next CBA. So, there's an enormous amount of stake to these NFL players, but they were kept in the dark. Well, you know, uh, Cyrus, one of the things that strikes me about this is uh, did, Jim, did Jimmy Hoffer ever try to do this with the Teamsters Union? <laughs> I mean, it just strikes me as like, this is nuts. Well, democracy should be at the core of what a union is about. I mean, one of the ironies is, is that what I've seen, and one of the reasons I decided to uh, compete for this, is that you've seen kind of a corporate takeover of one of the unions in America that has the potential to influence so much of what happens in this country. So you saw the current executive director came to the NFLPA after working at two different corporate law firms and represent the biggest companies and the most powerful companies. And I was trying to provide a choice that would say, hey, let's get a worker rights person. And when you have a corporate takeover, of the NFLPA, then you study it, you'll see that the top direct reports to the incumbent come from corporate law firms. But they spend millions of dollars, not on labor union law firms, but on law firms that are basically hateful to labor unions, that have shut down labor rights, shut down worker rights. Those are the people that are working for the NFLPA. So in light of that, it's probably not that surprising that they did something that was kind of a corporate trick which was in the fine print, without adequate explanation, that they stripped the players of their ability to de- determine the future executive director and the destiny of the league. And what they did specifically is that they, instead of having 32 player reps to select the uh, next executive director every three years, which has been the tradition, and keep in mind, there are 2,100 NFL players that are current, and then there are also uh, prior generations and future generations of NFL players that have a stake in the outcome as well as their families and so on. But they took it from the 32 player reps and put it into a uh, select committee of insiders that are very close to the executive director to determine whether or not there'd be an election. So the 32 were largely kept in the dark. Every player rep that I spoke to said that they were in favor of competition. They thought that our campaign was a legitimate alternative to be considered. 
and they didn't know about the change in the Constitution. So even the player representatives, to some extent, were kept in the dark. Certainly the 2,100 players were kept in the dark. And this is, this is really squashing something that's so vital to them, which is to be able to determine their destiny. And so that's what happened, and it happened in a very quiet, secretive way. Uh, fortunately, for me anyway, I'm looking to the future, not to the past. Clearly what happened was wrong, but the, the good news is is that our campaign, and you can find information on it at Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, number four, NFLPA.com, is a vehicle for change because if the players want to have choice, they want to have a democratic union. Our, our campaign is a vehicle to help bring that about. Cyrus, Eric Winston has defended the move by saying, quote, this isn't something you run for. This is an executive position at a company. Is a union a company? And if not, why not? A union is a democratic institution representing workers. A company, and I know Eric mentioned Apple, their responsibilities are to the shareholders. The moment you start saying a labor union is like a corporate entity with a corporate board is the moment you've lost your way as a labor union. That's why it's so important that in this moment when there's awakening on public issues by NFL players, and you guys have been around for a long time, I would say more so than probably the 70s, you'd have to go back to this level of player activism, that ironically that their constitutional rights within their own union was taken from them secretly without engaging the 2,100 current players, without fully informing the 32 player reps. So this is a moment of this awakening, and we, we believe that over the next several months, this awakening will turn to, hey, what about controlling our future? What about picking the leader we want? What about having a marketplace of ideas? One thing we learned from the Rooney Rule is that by being inclusive and being competitive, you get to the best results. And I believe that NFL players who right now are looking day-to-day, game-to-game, as the season progresses and we get into the spring, are going to be like, well, wait a minute, we have so much at stake. We deserve a competition. And And to make it happen, they have to take back their union and make it a workers' union make it a democratic union, and get away from the mindset that this is just another corporate entity. You've called this the is the season. NFL PA, not the NFL. NFL is a corporate <laughs> entity, but the PA has got to be about workers. So it wouldn't drop in exchange for giving up some legal rights that the NFL PA had. So they, that's how much of a bad deal it was. Making things worse, you could look industry by industry, you will not find anywhere in the labor movement a 10-year collective bargaining agreement in a profitable company. And so they got the players got locked into a deal where they can't opt out. Owners were loving it. And, in fact, their values of the clubs have skyrocketed from $1 billion per, per club to $2.3 billion in recent years. Have the players seen the benefit of that? No. The, the owners are so happy that this incumbent got selected by this insider, undemocratic process. Um, they, they were, you know, their public statement was kind of jumping for joy. So you'll see that they, 
like this incumbent because he is helping the owners economically at the at the expense of NFL players who deserve better. They deserve a choice. They deserve a democratic union, and they deserve to be able to control their destiny and get a fair economic deal with owners. Well, Cyrus, uh, now we got to get into our own economic deals and, and uh, <laughs> sell some product, but we hope to have you back again. Uh, this is not an issue that's going to go away for sure. We'd love to have you back on the show again uh, as things get closer, and hopefully uh, you find your way back to the ballot box. And, uh, we certainly appreciate you talking. Well, I appreciate you giving me the time, and uh, good luck for the rest of the show, and hopefully we'll talk later this year. Great, Cyrus. Thanks, Cyrus. When we come back, we'll visit with L.A. Rams general manager Les Snead, you're listening to Talk of Fame Network. Homeowners, on a tight budget and living in fear that something in your home might break? When something breaks, your cash reserves can be gone in a flash. Don't leave it to chance. Protect yourself with affordable coverage from Listen Up America Home Warranty. Stop worrying about repair bills. Get protected with Listen Up America Home Warranty. Call right now for a free quote. Everyone is guaranteed approval and the call and consultation are free. Call 800-609-5103. If you suffer from back or knee pain and have Medicare as your primary insurance, relief is a phone call away. Call Nation's Back and Knee Brace Hotline at 800-609-6817 and stop living with pain. With Medicare, you may qualify to receive your back or knee brace at little or no cost. We'll even handle the paperwork with Medicare and your doctor. Stop living in pain and call Nation's Back and Knee Brace Hotline now. Call 800-609-6817, 800-609-6817, 800-609-6817. Do you ever think to yourself, I wish there was something to wake me up and get me through the day? Well, wish no more. Mental Bright is here to enhance your memory and cognitive function. It will help you remember when that special someone's birthday is. Aw, you remembered. How could I forget? Or help you stay alert and aware during those long Monday morning meetings. <sighs> Jim, are you asleep? Whatever the occasion, Mental Bright is here to help you reach your fullest potential. Its unique blend of essential nutrients are derived from natural ingredients. Plus, it's a soy-free, dairy-free, nut-free, and gluten-free product. So if you're ready to turn your sluggish day into a productive one, order Mental Bright at mentalbright.com. They're so confident that if you don't like it, they'll write you a check for 10% more than what you paid. That's a 110% guarantee. So check out mentalbright.com to change your life today. That's mentalbright.com. Jim, you seem a little sluggish in the office. What's been going on? Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just can't seem to stay focused. Have you heard of Mental Bright? Mental Bright, what is that? Mental Bright's unique formula helps with improving memory, gives you a sharper focus and a better concentration. Go to mentalbright.com and try our product absolutely risk-free. We're so confident in our formula that if you don't like it, we'll send you a check for 10% more than you paid. That's a 110% guarantee. Go to mentalbright.com today. Welcome back to Fun with Fuel Additives, brought to you by Berryman B12 Chemtool Gasoline Treatment. Hello, India. Hello. Yes, I am most pleased to add the B12 Chemtool to my gas tank every third fill-up, and I can totally feel the difference. Not surprising. With regular use, Berryman's B12 Chemtool Gasoline Treatment will clean your engine's entire fuel system, increase performance, and even improve your gas mileage. B12 Chemtool is the bomb pay, I am telling you. You'll find Berryman products at AutoZone or online at BerrymanProducts.com. Uh, Bombay? Sorry, I got curried away. Oh, boy. 
You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Les Sneed, is the general manager of the Los Angeles Rams and the architect of one of the NFL's best turnaround stories this season. The Rams finished 4-12 last year, a season that cost head coach Jeff Fisher his job. Les brought in a new coach, several new players, and following an upset road victory over the Cowboys last weekend, the Rams now find themselves sitting alone atop the NFC West with a 3-1 record. Now, Les is here to visit with us about his 2017 Rams. Les Sneed, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, Rick. Good to see you in the locker room post-Dallas, as always, this you past a, weekend. You had a very big smile, as I recall, <laughs> last weekend. <laughs> yeah, you can only smile when you're in the NFL uh, when, the, you know, when the clock strikes zero and you, you, know, you do the math and you got more points than the opponent. <laughs> That's just how Sundays go. Hey, Les, let's start with the coach. To say it was a radical move on your part certainly understates the hiring. In 30-year-old Sean McVay, you hired the youngest head, ever head coach in NFL history. He's younger than some of the players he's coaching. In the hiring process, what did you like about McVay that made him the right fit? say this, obviously a big part of, of hiring Sean, but I do like to, to say, hey, it's, it's we. And, you know, it starts, with, it starts at the top with Stan, and then you know Kevin, our president, you know them myself. So it's a group effort when you when you go to hire a head coach. But I can tell you, let's go before we ever sat down with Sean. You were able to to really start diving into whether we call it statistics or, or analytics to try to find out of the box candidates. And 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 you you know one thing was very clear uh, when Sean was the OC of the Redskins is you know what their offense may be in an unsung matter was kind of a top five offense in a lot of categories. Uh, you know, a quarterback who might not, let's call it, be, you know, always mentioned amongst the Tom Brady's, the Drew Brees, the, the, you know, the Aaron Rodgers, whomever. You know, he seemed in those two years perform, you know, from a metric state, you know, just as good as him. So that, that kind of brought Sean to your attention. And I think another thing in the process was, it's one thing to be able to play chess as a coach. It's another thing to be able to, hey, teach your players, communicate with them, get them to execute. And, and doing the player interviews were, was fascinating. And and calling some of the Redskins and avoiding that, I call it the QB room, because those guys are probably going to like Sean. It was some of the other players on the team, both defensively and offensively. And, boy, the the you know when you went through their agents to get to the players, uh, kind of the glowing recommendations that Sean got. You kind of had a gut feeling that, you know what, this guy, even though he's young, can command a room, has respect to players, can teach football, and, and, and that's what players like. And at the end of the day, it was probably about 10 minutes into the interview that I probably wrote down, you know what, at the end, age doesn't matter. It's just a, you know, it's just a matter of whether you want to you know, hire Sean McVay to be your head coach or not. So uh, that's kind of how what that process went. Well, of course, uh, you traded up to take uh, Jared Goff with the first overall pick in uh, the 2016 draft. Uh, but when he finally hit the field, rookie season, he struggled like a lot of rookies, and he lost seven of, he lost seven of his starts. He threw more picks than touchdowns. People are yelling. Did you ever waver at all in your belief that you traded up for the right guy? No, you know, I, the, the, the answer, and I'll say it, is no. And you always know this. And, and I'm not saying that you're not well aware that, okay, uh, when you when we started playing Jared, okay, he's struggling. He's not there yet. We did know from the start. You know, we were drafting a 21 year old kid who was coming from an unconventional offense. We knew there was definitely going to be a developmental curve 
from that. And But I think when you go through what he did, I don't think you waver. I think you collect data. And let's just say you start with the GM, right? What do I need to do better uh, to help Jared Goff out? Do, do we need to uh, add some pieces to the skill positions, to the offensive line positions? Do we need to delete some problems? Uh, things like that, and I and I think it, you know it trickles down from there. You don't ever waver because hopefully you've done the research and you believe in you know in the player that you pick. But you do know that in most of these cases, especially the QB, guess what? You got to work to make the decision work because uh, most of the time these guys aren't ready made, and especially a guy like Jared who is still 22 now, probably about to turn 23 here early October, but. Uh, Hey, was a very, very young QB and had a lot of, you know, he was a blank slate, and we just needed the right people in to, to kind of fill that slate up. Les Troy Aikman went 0-11 in his rookie season with the Cowboys in 1989, and there was a simmering quarterback controversy in Dallas between Aikman and Steve Walsh. And when I asked Jimmy Johnson about his quarterback position, he said Aikman was not the problem. Jimmy said it was his job to surround Aikman with better players that would give him a chance to become the franchise quarterback they believed him to be. I I think it, uh, you know, his confidence level, his efficacy, I like to call it, and I like to use the word efficacy because, guess, you know, that kind of word means you, you went out, you had success, and now you, you believe in the process, you believe in yourself. But as we know, hey, right now, and, and I always preface it, right, we're in the first quarter. We hadn't even got to halftime of the season yet. We got to file away the good uh, because, guess what, we got the Seahawks coming in. But, from an offensive standpoint, a lot of categories, you know, we were 32nd. We were we were high 20s last year. A lot of categories this year. Through four games, we're first. And at the end of the day, that's offense. And as as both of you guys are well aware of, right, there's 11 players on offense. Those guys are symbiotic. And in it takes, you know, you, you're not sure which or who gets the, you know, the most percentage points in terms of most important starting with Shaw McVay, his coaching staff, his coordinators, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, Gerald Everett, Todd Gurley, putting people around, helping the running game out, the running game helping the passing game out, the passing game making pass protection a little easier because the defense is, is on their heels and guessing a little bit. We become a little less one-dimensional, again, being able to have players with certain skill sets to make explosive plays, be able to throw the curly out of the backfield, and he, and, he, and he goes the distance. All of those things matter. All of those things that help not only Jared Goff, but obviously the Rams offense, and, and obviously heck, the Rams team. Well, you know, being an old guy and old school, I like defense, even though it's been outlawed uh, for the most part. And, and you certainly went out and uh, selected three first-rounders in early dra- you know, recent drafts for your front seven, Aaron Donald and... Uh, Brockers and, and Robert Quinn, a linebacker. Um, and Sunday you really get after the quarterback there uh, against the Cowboys. Uh, how important was Wade Phillips uh, in that whole process? And is, did you sort of see him as the right coordinator at the right time for your particular defense? You know, I think it was a, definitely a, a very nice uh, piece of the puzzle, fit perfectly for – I know the, the two reasons that come to the top of my head immediately is, first of all, Sean was coming to be the, the Rams head coach, but he knew he wanted to be the offensive coordinator as well. So he was going to take on a dual role. He's very conscientious of 
not just being a coordinator, but also being a leader of the team. And I think hiring Wade definitely allows him to be as good a coordinator as he is a head coach right now because he doesn't have to have a lot of concern with the defense because, hey, guess what, Wade's a proven commodity. And then going to the players, we were a 4-3, Wade's a 3-4. I had been with Wade before in Atlanta. Uh, you know, know a lot of people that work Wade. But at the end of the day, the traits of our 4-3, the traits of the players in our 4-3 were very similar to what he was looking for in his 3-4. Because there's different versions of the 3-4 and a lot of ways to skin a cat, but Hey, those guys that can penetrate, that can get up the field, Aaron Donalds, things like that, they fit in his scheme, and uh, he felt like it was going to be a smooth transition. Les, you went outside the box with small school players with your top two draft picks, taking tight end Gerald Everett out of South Alabama in the second round, wide receiver Cooper Cup out of Eastern Washington in the third. Now, it's a gigantic step from that level of college competition to the NFL, yet both those players have been contributors in the first month. What did you see in Everett and Cup that made you believe they could make that jump that quickly? Yeah, uh, let's go Gerald Everett since we took him first in the second round. Uh, obviously, coming if you go back and look at Sean and Washington, uh, you know, there was a lot of comparisons made to you know Jordan Reed, but Sean will tell you Jordan's kind of a, you know in a category – of his own really good player, but big picture, Sean was going to use tight ends. They definitely need to have a certain skill set. And one of the things Gerald had was, you know, for a tight end, he had the ability to make explosive plays. And a lot has to do with some of the mom, dad, God given traits that he was born with in terms of speed and explosiveness. But there was one thing you really liked about Gerald, even though he was at a small school, he, they did play some bigger schools. And when he did go and play a Mississippi State or, uh, you know, a Division One opponent that's, uh, even though South Alabama is Division One, but let's call it a Power Five opponent, you know, he showed up. And you could tell he wanted the ball. There was this competitiveness about him that Sean really liked. And, and the biggest piece of the puzzle, guess what? He actually fit Sean's scheme. It's, it's a chess piece in his offense that Sean really wanted. And then going back to, to Cup, even though he was small school, extremely high football IQ, uh, you know, has you know plays receiver with a quarterback mind, and we knew before we did anything with our receiving core, we wanted to definitely remove unreliability and, and bring in reliability. And, and Robert Woods is very reliable and person. Hey, that that means he's where he's supposed to be. Well, you know, Les, uh, obviously your background is as a scout. You worked previously with uh, Tom Coughlin in Jacksonville and Dan Reeves in Atlanta before you became the GM of the Rams. And I'm just wondering what influence those two coaches uh, had on your approach to how to build a team. Oh, you, I don't think you can, you know, you can work under either one of those guys uh, and not be, you know, affected for the good. And it's, it was, like I said, it's a rare opportunity. Sometimes when you're young, you probably don't understand the the magnitude of it, uh, but when you when you, when when it's all said and done, you revise history. You go, wow, those are, are two Hall of Fame caliber uh, coaches. And and heck, I, I write down things all the time. You always say this. Usually, when you're in football, and and going back to just my life, I was you know, single, you know, raised by a single mom. So a lot of football coaches basically raised me from junior high to high school to college to now. So I'm I'm basically a product of a of a lot of football coaches, starting with my high school coach. But you, you can't help but learn consistently. Consistency with, you know, Tom Coughlin. If there's one thing I write down is 
no matter what you're doing in your processes, in the way you practice, in the way you play, uh, you know what? If, if you spend time with Tom Coughlin, you're going to come away, right. you know, making sure that guess what? You're going to be consistent. And I could say the same thing about Dan. There's, you know, I can remember vividly to Dan being in charge of the Falcons, and and we were going to. At that point in time, I forget where we were picking to. I knew it was a trade-up. It was a year we traded up to pick Vic. And and I've told this story many times. It's not a secret. He kind of really loved this running back from TCU, uh, you know, named LaDainian Thomason. And if you know Dan, he liked to run <laughs> the ball. And, you know, he really liked this quarterback from, you know, Purdue named Drew Brees. But at the end of the day, he sat and he he – he 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 spent a whole day. It was just him and the draft loon alone. I think he was on the phone with Frank Beamer the whole time. Nobody in the room. And I think he came out and he gave his general manager at the time, Harold Richardson, a thumbs up. Next thing I know, we're traded up to to take you know Michael Vick. And what Dan was able to do with Vick. Dan came from a very complicated offensive system. Rick, you're, you're a Dallas guy. Tom Landry. They're talking about how complicated sometimes that system was, but what Dan did in those early years with Vic to simplify his stuff, as he used to say, "Hey, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let some system, you know, bog down the best, you know, weapon in football." But you learn a lot of things from both of those two guys, and and boy, what a, you know, how fortunate you are as a young person to to be under those type guys. Pretty good think tank. Unless we'd like to thank you for joining us and wish you the best of luck the rest of the way. And hopefully we'll see you and the Rams again in January in the playoffs. You know, that's the goal. But right now we're just thinking about the next week, and that's the Seattle Seahawks. <laughs> so we're, we're game at a time around here right now. There's a football guy for you. Thanks, Les. <laughs> Thanks, Les. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. There's a signal that we're nearly at the end of our first hour. So, Ron... You have the two-minute drill this week. Take us home. Okay, Gooseman. The Eagles have allowed 52 fourth-quarter points the last three games. Are they eating too many Philly cheesesteaks or running too few wind sprints? Ryan, you've heard the franchise theme song, Fly, Eagles, Fly. Well, those (laughs) wings get awfully tired flapping after three quarters. (laughs) Just one team since the 1970 merger has started 0-4 and made the playoffs. Will the Giants become the second? Only if the Giants get Natron Means to run the ball, Leslie Neal to rush the passer, Junior Sato make tackles, and John Carney to score every time he kicks the ball, like those 92 Chargers who rebounded from that 0-4 start to finish 11-5. So, no, I don't see that happening. Ooh, Natron Means. Love that guy. Uh, the Lions' defense has produced 11 turnovers in four games. Should they open a bakery? Light Train Lane and Yaler are looking down from the Hall of Fame heavens and smiling. The Lions are playing defense again for the first time in ages. Our friend Raider head coach Jack Del Rio saw his son fracture his collarbone in his first start at quarterback for Florida on Saturday, and Derek Carr fractures back on Sunday. Which hurt Del Rio more? His son Luke's fracture. This was his final season of college football, and he'll never take another snap for for the Gators. Carr will be back this season and for many more. Which football team is more popular in L.A., the Chargers or the Galaxy? At 0-4, with three home losses, it's questionable the Chargers are even playing any brand of football these days. They need to start bending it like Beckham. Tom Brady's on pace to throw for 5,596 yards. He's also on pace to be sacked 52 times. Can he reach the former if he reaches the latter? The bones of a 40-year-old break easier than the bones of a 25-year-old. If he goes down 50 times, he will not finish the season. 
With Marcos Mariota limping, should the Titans sign Colin Kaepernick? Forget Kaepernick. If you remember <laughs> Love the, the guy. Titan, if you remember the Titans at all, the quarterback you need is Ronnie Sunshine Bass. <laughs> That's right. Remember the Titans. <laughs> is it an error to begin the Mitchell Trubisky era against the Vikings defense? No, the error was beginning the Mitchell Trubisky era with Mike Glennon at quarterback. The Bears now have three losses in the season and are asking Trubisky to save it. That's the end of the game. Well, that's the end of our two-minute drill. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back for the second hour of the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to the second hour of the Talk of Fame Network. Ron, I was in Dallas last week when the Rams, an eight-and-a-half-point underdog, upset the Cowboys. You were in Foxborough when the Patriots, an eight-point underdog, rocked New England. The Falcons also lost at home to the Bills, a seven-and-a-half-point underdog. It was a great day for upsets, but a bad day for NFL bodies. Oakland lost their starting quarterback, Derek Carr, for up to six weeks with a fractured back. Three playoff contenders lost their lead rushers, Green Bay, Minnesota, and Seattle. With major bone breaks or ligament tears, Seattle lost Pro Bowl pass rusher Cliff Averill for several weeks with a neck injury. Tennessee quarterback Marcus Mariota, Atlanta wideout Julio Jones, and Washington corner Josh Norman also hobbled off with injuries. So, Ron, how did you survive last weekend in the One Piece? (laughs) Well, I've uh, long been adept at one thing, knowing when to duck, which these guys need to work on, that's for sure. You know, I've... uh, uh, the troubling thing to me is if you step back from this a little bit uh, uh, and get away from the sort of daily life of pro football that you and I live, uh, and you just listen to what you just said, the one word for it is carnage. Yeah. I mean, you start to ask yourself, is this really a game anymore? When every week these young men are walking out of the locker room and come back broken and in pieces, you know, look, right. we all understand it's a contact sport. Things happen. Uh, but it's just beginning to, me at least, to get the feeling of too big, too fast, too too many natural looking people slamming into each other, and, and the result's been rough. Aaron, just as we do here at the Talk of Fame Network, the NFL subscribes to the next man up philosophy. If the player goes down, the next guy steps in. Ironically, the best player in the NFL this season has been the beneficiary of an injury. Kareem Hunt stepped in when Spencer Ware went down this summer with an injury. Now he's the best player in the NFL. You saw him in the opener, Ron. What makes Hunt special? Well, the guy is tremendously explosive. You know, he's not just fast and he's not just quick. He has tremendous vision. Uh, when he sees a hole, he goes, whether he's going right to left or straight ahead, he's getting there in a, in a hurry and without fear. And boom. I mean, it's, to me, it's that explosiveness that separates guys like him from everybody else. Uh, you know, I was shocked uh, at just the way he tore apart the New England's defense. Yeah, you know, like like Kareem Hunt, we've got to run. Next up, we'll visit with David Spada, who interviewed 133 Hall of Famers for his book, Talking Football. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. As you know, we are a Hall of Fame-themed show focusing on Hall of Famers past, present, and future. Our next guest, David Spada, focuses on Hall of Famers of the past. 
He's written a series of books featuring the guys with those gold jackets. He's interviewed 133 Hall of Famers for his books, Talking Football, which you can find on Amazon. And we've invited David on our show to visit with us about those interviews and his writings. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Heard about you guys for years. You guys are legendary writers. <laughs> and you're a legendary author, so that's why you're talking. <laughs> so, David... How does one go about tracking down 133 Hall of Famers? There are weeks for this show we have trouble tracking down one or two of them. It's difficult. I mean, I used to have a radio show in 2008 with Robin Earl who played for the Bears, and I thought if you're a former football player, you just pick up the phone and get Hall of Famers and great players. I didn't realize that these guys didn't have the phone numbers problem and how difficult it is. But, again, it's just going research on the Internet trying to track them down either through Twitter, Facebook, or some of these search programs. So who was the most difficult uh, Hall of Famer so far for you to get? Uh, my favorite one who I haven't interviewed, my favorite player of all time, Dan Marino. I just can't get by his wife or his uh, publicist. <laughs> Neither can we. Yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> he's, a, he's a difficult one to get. He'd be a good one to get if you get him. So who gave you the best backstory to his Hall of Fame career? Uh, probably Jim Brown. He's the one who scared me the most. The other guys, it's like, okay, I remember them playing. I wasn't that intimidated. But when you think of Jim Brown, I'm like, is he going to agree to do this? He told me, I'll talk to you for five minutes. And I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to get from Jim Brown in five minutes? Half hour later, he was still going. And again, he just went into how he got into football, and football wasn't even his favorite sport. It was um, rugby. And he invited me at 75 years old to play rugby against them. I had never played <laughs> rugby before, but I'm like, you know what? If Jim Brown wants to play rugby against me, I'll suit up and try to play against them. He probably beat me to the ground. <laughs> but again, that guy was absolutely incredible how smart he is going to Syracuse. And, and I asked him, I said, you're the greatest player of all time, most players say he goes, I don't know about that. He was very humble. Huh. Did, you believe, did you believe him? That he, uh, no, I don't believe <laughs> that he's not the greatest. He is the greatest. You ask majority of the Hall of Famers who played against him and watched him, they said he was the greatest. He was a size of defensive lineman, but he ran like a 4-2, and you couldn't bring him down. And most of the Hall of Famers, when they have pictures up in their office or talk about playing against guys, they have pictures of him trying to tackle Jim Brown. Sam Huff has a picture of him breaking his helmet. Larry Wilson's got a picture of him hanging on, trying to bring him down. Bob <laughs> Lilly's got a picture of trying to take him down. It's incredible the respect that guy's got among his cohorts. He's got it here in my office, too. I look over my left shoulder, and there he is in a cutout on, on top of my uh, table holding a football. He's got no helmet because he didn't need one. Uh, that's no, all. Didn't. <laughs> yeah, that guy was the best. Um, you must have visited with several Packers from the sixties. Uh, what was the best Lombardi story you heard? Uh, probably how he treated those players like family members. One of the players told me that he went up to Green Bay, a black player for the Packers, and he said the only black people up in Green Bay at that time were basically either the Packer players or the women of the night. And <laughs> he said that, listen, Lombardi told him the way it was going to be. He said, listen, you're going to make an honest woman out of your girlfriend here, and you're going to get married, have a family, raise them and everything. And basically he treated them like family members. He told them how to live their lives, and he had their backs all the time. But 
he took care of those players, and he saved that franchise because there was a football Siberia when he got there, and he turned that thing around. Even though he wanted to be the Giants coach, and they screwed up, they had him and Tom Landry as assistant coaches, and I hear somebody else instead of either one of them because supposedly uh, New York wasn't ready for an Italian coach, and they didn't want Landry. Which Hall of Famer did you find the most engaging? Art Donovan. I talked to him right before he passed away, and I remember as a kid watching him on David Letterman. This guy had story after story. He talked about cooking with Julia Child on Letterman and how they were drinking from the bottle during the show and how he got in the back of the uh, car with Julia Child, and they were, they were also drinking wine from the bottle, and Julia got a little fresh with him. And I invited <laughs> you over I was inviting me to go to his country club and drink Schlitz with him by the pool. <laughs> uh, uh, did you get any uh, a sense from any or many of them that the Hall of Fame recognition in any way you know, changed their lives? What most of them told me is that they agree with Deacon Jones that that's the only team that you're a part of that you can't be cut from and you're a Hall of Famer for life. What really upsets them is some of these newer guys, when they go in the hall and they say, I earned this, I belong here, they said, no, that's not the way it is. It is an honor to be in the Hall of Fame, and people should not, these players should not forget it, and they can't stand the people with the Eagles. Again, they think every Hall of Famer is equal, and they should be treated equal. And if one of them needs something, the other one should be there with them. And a lot of the younger guys, don't grasp that. These older guys are really having a hard time with it. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, we'd like to thank you, Dave, for visiting us today and wish you the best of luck going forward with the sales of your books. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, David. Thank you very much for being on. Ron, it's time for the best four minutes of our show each week in my favorite segment, Dr. Data. Absolutely. Today, I'm going to address the youth of the NFL. The salary cap changed the way the NFL does business and not necessarily for the better. Experience was once a valued commodity by head coaches, but not after the cap arrived. The older the player, the higher his wage. So age no longer became a luxury on rosters, it became an enemy. Over the last 10 years in particular, there has been an absolute sprint in the other direction. In 2007, the average age of an NFL roster was 26.6 years. The average age of starting lineups was 27.4 years. There were 345 players 30 years of age or older on NFL rosters, with 191 of them in starting lineups. Ten years later, in 2017, the average age of the NFL's opening day rosters was 26 years. The average age of the starting lineups, 26.7 years. There were only 239 players 30 years of age or older on NFL rosters, That's 106 fewer than 10 years ago. In only 126 of those, 30-somethings were starting. That's 65 fewer than 10 years ago. In 2007, there were twice as many offensive linemen over the age age of 30 starting, 55 of them. In 2017, there are only 27 of them. Offensive lines allowed 1,102 sacks in 2007. They're on a pace to allow 1,300 sacks in 2017. In 2007, there were 11 starting lineups, an average age under 27. In 2017, there are 24 such lineups. This is the youngest the NFL has ever been. All those experienced hands that don't make mistakes have been disappearing, 
replaced on rosters by the salary cap friendly younger players who do make the mistakes that can cost a team games. Is there any wonder why play has become so ragged and fundamentals so forgotten in today's NFL? The athletes may be far better than they were 30 and 40 years ago, but not the game itself. Well, Dr. Data, that's very interesting. Uh, not surprising, but it's, it's interesting to see those numbers really jump off the page at you. Is there any way that you think this will change and revert back to the way it used to be? Yeah, I think the, the one thing, and I've talked to a couple of NFL people about this, if they reduce the, the, the minimum wage, if they make one minimum wage for a player to make, right now it's scaled. If you're a rookie, you make this much. If you're a second-year pay, you make a little more. If you're third, you play a little more. If they just have one minimum wage, make it maybe maybe six, $700,000 a year, I think they'll keep a lot more veteran players. And I know veteran players that, that still want to play and would play for less, but the uh, collective bargain agreement won't let them, so they wind up getting cut. I think they've got to find a way to keep those older players on rosters, and to do that, I think, is to make one standard minimum wage. Well, do you think that – where do you think coaches stand on this? They, they want all the players or not? Yeah, they, they'd want to keep them uh, as, long as, as long as they possibly can. But, again, the salary cap won't let them. So, Ron, once again, we've got to run, and uh, we've got a commercial break. We've got to pay some bills. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network. Even though Clark is absent from this week's show, we're going to pay homage to him by bringing up one musical item. Tom Petty passed away this week. And, Ron, I've got a handful of songs on my iPod. Refugee, Free Fallen, Don't Do Me Like That. Any Tom Petty memories for you? Well, uh, sadly, haven't we all felt the feelings in Don't Do Me Like That? Even though at some point we all get done like that. (laughs) You're still getting done like that. <laughs> still, that's exactly. If you're in the newspaper business, that's right. You're still getting done like that. <laughs> so, Ron, did you notice the winner of our poll at www.talkoffamenetwork.com last week? We asked which strike player went on to have the best NFL career. We listed guys who won Super Bowl rings and went to Pro Bowls, quarterbacks like Steve Bono and Eric Kramer, safety Ed Anderson, defensive tackle Joe Phelps, safety Mike Pryor. And guess who won? The Who's only that? punter on the ballot, <laughs> Kelly Goodburn of the Chiefs, who went on from the strike to win a Super Bowl ring with the Washington Redskins. Now, Ron, I know how much you like special teams. It's that Bill Belichick influence on you. But I'm guessing Goodburn didn't get your vote. Sadly, he did not. He did not. Uh, you know you know me, uh, Goose, man. I'm a defensive guy, kind of a hard-nosed dude. And uh, uh, I dipped for Joe Phillips. Uh, look, he became a top-rated interior defensive line for 12 years. You know, coming out of a FedEx truck or off a hay bale or wherever he was when they when they found him, you know, picking apples or whatever he was doing. Uh, and look, it's hard to come into that league as a high draft choice uh, and a well-appointed guy and and be an effective defensive lineman and a guy who, you know, he affected games. I mean, he was just a guy sort of plugging the gaps. Uh, so to me, uh, what he did was really amazing. Uh, in addition to the fact that at least early on, he had to put up with the fact that he was a replacement player. Uh, and some would call worse than that. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that had to be a difficult time. In the last 12 years, it's impressive. Okay, Ron, we're four weeks in, and then at the quarter pole of the NFL season, the league hasn't exactly played out like we all expected. Did anyone expect the Kansas City Chiefs to be the only unbeaten team after four weeks? Sure, I did. 
did anyone expect <laughs> the Patriots to be sitting there two and two with two home losses? Did anyone expect the Giants to be 0-4? Did anyone expect Alex Smith, Smith <laughs> to be the best quarterback in the NFL? So, Ron, what's your biggest surprise to this point? Well, you know, uh, I guess there's two things that come to mind. is the way Deshaun Watson has played immediately going into the uh, lineup, considering, you know, the kind of style that he played in college. But uh, maybe because I'm so close to it to be the, the, the biggest thing is the Patriots. You know, they really should be one and three if if the Texans don't drop an interception uh, or they have a guy somewhere close enough to fall on Tom Brady's fumble. He never gets to throw the pass that saves the day, and he becomes the conquering hero as usual. Yeah. Uh, so they would have been beaten at home by Houston, which means they would not only be one and three, but they be zero oh and three at Gillette Stadium. And this is a place where they, you know they lost a handful of games in the last fifteen years there, and it's a pretty small hand. Uh, so to see their defensive shredded week after week with no apparent uh, let up, uh, I think is shocking. You know, you're, like you said, they they could easily be one and three. The Falcons could easily be two and two. You've been around football long enough to understand how tough it is to get the Super Bowl, and it's even tougher to get back. So, is the Super Bowl hangover affecting both teams? Well, I think uh, you know history, and we've talked about it on the show. Goose uh, certainly in the case of the. Super Bowl loser. There's a long history of this, and and, and I believe it's going to affect the, the Falcons, especially the way they lost. I mean, that was really tough to take. Uh, and I, I think as players, you begin to subconsciously ask yourself, are you willing to go through all the difficulties uh, that it takes to get back there to face the possibility of the ultimate disappointment in American sports two years in a row? That's why I think the Bills going back four years and losing is one of the most phenomenal things ever. You know, as for the Patriots, I think it's different. I think they changed a lot of faces, primarily on defense, where they try to get younger, uh, and I think that uh, that part hasn't gelled. And I think, quite frankly, Malcolm Butler is on one edge of that defense, looking across the field at a guy making sixty-five million, and he's thinking, "That guy got sixty-five million. He doesn't know where to go, and I'm playing for minimum wage. Maybe I'm not. Gonna, maybe I'll go where I want to." And uh, they, I don't know how they're going to rein that in, but that's a significant yeah. problem. Okay, I'll give you three teams. The Buffalo yes. Bills, the Detroit Lions, and the Los Angeles Rams. All three are 3-1. Three and one. Which one is for real? Well, I think the Lions, which is hard to say since, you know, when's the last time they won the championship? You, you don't Tobin like that Rote? one playoff one in the last 60 years? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a Tobin Road and Bobby Lane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, last time they won, there was no face mask, right? That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> this tells you everything you need to know, but uh, you know they've been get, they've been improving and improving and improving, uh, and they have the quarterback, uh, I believe, and that's the, the key thing. Uh, now, look with the Rams, if their quarterback can keep playing the way he's playing, well, then they're the you know they're for real. But I think that the uh, um, the Bills will be the Bills in the end, and the Lions they just look like they have some teeth, you know, mm-hmm. not like a full mouth load perhaps, but enough teeth to maybe finally bite somebody. Yeah, for the first time in decades, you're playing some defense, too. Okay, the Chargers are playing in a 25,000-seat stadium, and they are already placing tarps over sections <laughs> of unsold seats. This clearly isn't hasn't worked out the way Dean Spanos expected. So how do the Chargers salvage what has become a very bad situation, playing in a city that doesn't care about them? Well, I think, look, you know L.A. as, as well as I do. You know, the only thing that, that they have to hope for is, is win. You know, L.A.'s a winner's town. If you win, even if you're the Clippers, people will come. If you lose, even if you're the Dodgers or the Lakers, they won't. That's just it. I mean, you know, they're about 
box office, you know, big movies. They don't go to bad movies like the rest of us. Uh, you know, I don't think it's so much that they look at the charges as carpetbaggers. It's that they're losing carpetbaggers, you know, and they're playing in a bad Texas high school football stadium. <laughs> so that's the two bad things. But uh, the, the solution to their problem is win. If you win in L.A., they'll love you. And if you don't, see you later. Yeah, that's why they're going to embrace the Rams. They're winning. Right, exactly. Yeah. So you've seen them come in and spank the Patriots, Ron. Is Kansas City really the best team in football? No, I don't think so, but but they're playing the best right now, which, as you know, isn't the, isn't the same thing, Goose. Uh, we'll see where things stand after 12 games. You know, the NFL schedule, to me, and I've said it on the show before, you know, it's, it's not one schedule. It's four seasons of four games each. And who you are in the last four games is often nowhere near what you were at the start. You know, uh, right now Kansas City looks unbeatable, but I don't believe they are. Um, and they're one or two injuries away from being very, very ordinary. Uh, a lot of the, what they do is based on, you know, a few guys really, um, you know, making big plays. Uh, if they can keep doing that, then, then they keep winning. But I do not think that they are the best team in, in football. Do you buy into how well Alex Smith is playing? And can yeah, I mean, yeah. You know what he reminds me of? He reminds me of Brady before, uh, you know, whatever happened to his arm there in, in 06 and 07. He started, he started yeah. chucking the ball down the field. I mean, he's a very intelligent player, game management guy, limits his mistakes. Uh, and that's what Brady was for uh, for a long time. And you can go a long way in this league uh, with a quarterback like that if you have the kind of weapons that they've put around him. Yeah. Tony Romo decided to leave football for a broadcast booth, and it's turning out to be a shrewd career move. He's got away from out, you. Yes, sir. He, he couldn't wait to get away from me. <laughs> He's calling out plays before they happen, and that's what I want in an NFL analyst. Should Jake Cutler have stayed in the booth as well? Panic shopping by the Dolphins hasn't seemed to pan out for either Cutler or Miami. <laughs> well, the problem, I think, for Jay Cutler, had he stayed uh, in the booth, is he would be calling out the wrong plays, just like he does <laughs> when he's at the line of scrimmage for, for whatever team it is, you know? And you, and you can see, Goose, that it's getting crazy down there. You know, Adam Gase came out after the game, so you know, he's tired of people criticizing Cutler, you know? Well, sorry. Uh, he isn't, you know, he isn't very good, and he isn't helping you win games. So if you're not going to criticize him, certainly there'll be plenty of people in the public uh, that, that would push. Can you imagine? He'd be calling you know, blitzes that don't happen and you know, cover twos that turn into five guys, eight guys rushing a quarterback. <laughs> okay, the NFC East looks a lot more competitive than it did a month ago with the Eagles, Cowboys, and Redskins all in the thick of it. So who wins the East? I like the Eagles a little, you know, if the quarterback continues to grow. I think that's the key thing there. You know, Dallas' uh, defense doesn't appear to be good enough, and you told our listeners that that's what the situation was going to be before the season even began. So uh, I, I think they've got problems. But it still remains difficult for me to believe that Dallas doesn't somehow make it. Uh, as for the Redskins, how can you trust a quarterback, a team quarterback by a Spartan? You know what I mean? You, just, you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, the Eagles, Redskins, and Giants are all playing defense, and the Cowboys aren't. Yeah, the, well, there you the, go. Okay, the most competitive division in the NFL is the NFC South, which is really no one's surprise. Top to bottom, that division has the best set of quarterbacks with three past NFL MVPs, Drew Brees, Cam Newton, and Matt Ryan. The Falcons, Panthers, and Bucks all have one loss thus far. So who wins the South? Well, you know, after Sunday, it looked like, in that game, it looked like the Panthers. Uh, um, and, you know, and that team's got a lot of talent. They've got some injuries now on defense, uh, but they've got a lot of playmakers over there and cam newton uh, when healthy i think is still a, a transcendent uh, player 
but in the end, I just lean toward Atlanta because my vision of Atlanta, putting Matty Ice aside, Boston College's own, um, is the speed on that defense. I mean, that defense can be lethal if they get all you know going in the same direction and being on the same page. Uh, so I like their defense in the end to, to find a way to pull it out. Now that assumes Julio Jones stays healthy. If if, if he ends up getting hurt for any long period of time, uh, then they're a different team. Ron, just earlier you trashed Buffalo, and Buffalo just got done trashing Atlanta. Yeah, I know, I know, but I just can't. You know, I've seen the Bills for too long. Too long. You know how many times I've been to Buffalo and seen them just their fans just dragging out like somebody just kicked their cat. You know. <laughs> okay, quickly. Last thing. Tell me you saw the Rams coming, 3-1, and one, sitting alone atop the West. Tell me you saw that coming. <laughs> I cannot say that I did. I would like to say that I did, but I cannot. Uh, to me, they it all, a lot of it hinges with their running back uh, staying healthy and, and the quarterback continuing to play better than anybody expected he could at, at uh, 22 years old. Yeah, I saw him last week, and I think that is the best story in the NFL right now, the complete resurrection of that franchise. We had Les Snead on. Give him credit. He's done a great job putting this thing back together. Um, again, I think it's a terrific story, and it'd be great if they could uh, hold on here. Okay, we got a break for a commercial, but stay tuned. We have Dick Bertelson up next to talk about the 1987 NFL strike. And Ron, of course, is an expert on that strike. You're listening to the Talk of Him Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. For nearly 40 years, Richard Bertelson served as NFLPA legal counsel and principal assistant before becoming interim executive director of the National Football League Players Association on August 21st, 2008, after the sudden death of their longtime executive director, Gene Upshaw. During his career, Dick was in the midst of every major decision and conflict the Players Union faced, and as such, had an inside look, really, at the 24-day 1987 strike that led to the replacement players and at least some form of free agency. All month, we are uh, revisiting these turbulent days when pro football was shut down in America. And who better to take us inside it all than someone who was in the players' war room? Dick, happy to have you on the show. Uh, glad to be with you. It's been, uh, what, 30 years, so <laughs> yeah, it seems like yesterday to me, but it's really <laughs> been a long time ago. Happy I still, anniversary. I still got the T-shirt, but I don't fit into that uh, 55% of the gross one, you know, no freedom, no yeah. football. <laughs> yeah. Well, that one was back in 1982. So that uh, yeah, was, that's right. That was 15 years before that, or got it up what, there. five years before that. Yeah. Up there on the wall, you know. Um how did you, just to get a little background, how did you first become involved with the union? Was that when uh, Ed Garvey first took over, or how, how did you initially get involved? Well, it's basically because of a, a strong Wisconsin connection. I I grew up in in uh, Wisconsin, went undergrad there and to law school. And when I was in law school, uh, I graduated in 69. This would have been in the mid-60s. There were two guys who were actually playing in the NFL, Ken Bowman, uh, and Pat Richter, both uh, University of Wisconsin graduates, who were on the uh, the NFLPA executive committee. And uh, Ed Garvey was a classmate of mine, so we all kind of met each other uh, at the Wisconsin Law School. And when the players decided to uh, hire an executive director and form a staff uh, in Washington in the early 70s, uh, uh, Ed's name came up first because the players had retained a firm that uh, Ed took a job with out of law school. Uh, and then 
because of the familiarity we all had, um, I became their, their second hire uh, as a full, uh, uh, full-time staff lawyer in 1972. So it was more about that Wisconsin connection, really, than anything else. It wasn't like they undertook a, a nationwide search for the best <laughs> young labor lawyer in the country. It just kind of happened that way. But I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. Dick, what was the original thinking behind the strike? What, what was your end game? Uh, if we're going to 1987, yes. um, you know, we had been through two strikes, one in 74, which was all about freedom, was all about free agency. It was the same time that the baseball players were fighting for free agency, which they eventually won in their arbitration case in 76. In 82, we kind of shifted gears and went more toward a percentage of the gross uh, with a salary scale, but uh, after Ed Garvey left in uh, in 1983, Gene Upshaw took over. Um, the players, uh, everybody who'd been through all the wars together, uh, the thought then was that uh, free agency should be the issue again. And so uh, Gene kind of built the, the players back from the grassroots. Uh, he wasn't dictating to them that that should be the issue. But he had a lot of surveys, lots of team meetings. We had conventions, lots of rep meetings. Free agency became the main issue as we entered 1987 when the uh, previous CBA was to expire, uh, actually on August 31st of 1987. And by that time, uh, it was clear that the reps and the players wanted free agency as the number one issue, and that's what they were prepared to fight for. Now that that uh, as that strike served, uh, you know, began, uh, the normal thing happened to pick a lines, and there was no games that first week. And then management came back with their decision to use what I would call, and called uh, at the time, for which I took some heat, uh, to bring in the scabs, uh, euphemistically yeah. known as replacement players, uh, to try and continue playing games. Um, how much of a surprise was that? Uh, for the union and for yourself, because there are even a lot of guys in the NFL management and certainly in coaching who never thought that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, don't feel bad about calling it the scab season. Because, <laughs> uh, we, we, we talk privately about the fact that I'm writing a history of the NFL PA. I've got a chapter about the strike itself, which I have entitled the infamous scab season. So <laughs> I, I used I, I used the word uh, myself. It wasn't. It wasn't really a surprise in September because we had actually gotten a hint of it uh, back. I think in July after training camp started. Uh, I'll never forget personally how I first found out that the clubs were thinking about doing it. That is fielding replacements. In fact, it was a it was a call I got on a Saturday afternoon. I was at home. It was from a George Solomon, a former Washington Post. NFL reporter who had become the sports editor at that point in time. And he said, I, I heard that the, they're planning to use replacements if you got guys go on strike uh, in September. Uh, and what's your reaction to that? Uh, and frankly, and I knew George as a friend and talked had talked to him many times in the past, I said, my, my reaction really in one word is disbelief <laughs> that, that there would be uh, why? I mean, why would the the people who have 
have made so much money off of the shield called the NFL, uh, who fought so long and hard to preserve what they called the integrity of the game. How could they ever compromise that integrity by putting replacement players on the field? So I, my reaction really was one of disbelief, and I can remember calling Gene Upshaw, uh, and uh, I think he eventually talked to the Post too, and he was he was uh, equally surprised. But we didn't plan on striking obviously until after the season started. I think the season started that year, what maybe September sixth or so. I remember the strike started September twenty second, yeah. and so by that time we knew they were planning it. And in fact, throughout August, as they were cutting players in preseason, they were getting them to sign these contracts where they'd pay them a couple grand when they cut them uh, in return for the players' promise to come back and play for the team in the event that there was a strike. So we knew it was all happening starting in July. Uh, we did our best to, to avoid having the strike and made a lot of uh, proposals to compromise on the issue. But they were bound and determined to go through with it. So uh, it happened, and once we strike, we knew that they were going to be putting replacements on the field. Uh, it was a shock initially back in July, but we were learning to live with it when it came time uh, to strike in uh, late September. Dick, former Dallas Cowboys president Tex Schramm was once quoted as telling Gene, you're the cattle and we're the ranchers. Now, that quote has become infamous, yet my understanding is Tex was misquoted. What's the story behind that quote, and did it work <laughs> to the union's advantage? Well, actually, that that quote occurred in a bargaining session that occurred in Philadelphia. We called the strike uh, to begin after the Monday night game. Uh, and I think it was the 21st. It uh, could have been the 22nd. So the next day, Tuesday, was the first day of the strike. And Roselle, actually, who had not been involved, uh, he'd kind of been kicked out of it all by Culverhouse and his group who were taking over the negotiations for the management council, uh, offered to get uh, a, a session together in Philadelphia. Up to that time, none of the owners had attended any of the sessions, and Gene thought that was important. So Roselle promised that if we agreed to come to Philadelphia, he'd get some owners there. And so I think it was that Wednesday or maybe the Thursday. I remember it was a late evening session. Uh, and the Donlin brought in Tex Schramm, Dan Rooney, uh, and other members of his committee, in effect, to tell us that the owners were adamant against free agency. And that's when Tex made his speech. And what he actually said, uh, and I was there, and there were several players from the Eagles there and a few from the executive committee, uh, what he said is that um, you guys have to realize that we, the owners, and by the way, Tex wasn't even an owner. But he, <laughs> Just he, thought he, he was. Said, <laughs> he, he, maybe he had a percentage, I don't know. But he said, uh, we are the stewards of the game, and the players are the transients. Um, and really, the players really heard what he was saying. What he was saying is like, you know, <laughs> we're the bosses. You're the you're the employees. You know, we're the we're the masters. You're the slave. Whatever analogy you would wanna would wanna make. And I remember in the press conference afterwards, uh, and Ron, I think you were there. Yeah. 
uh, Jean said, um, well, basically what they were saying was that uh, they're the ranchers and, and we're the cattle. <laughs> Uh, and I mean, you could really, that was what he was saying. Uh, maybe it was Gene's paraphrase of what he was saying. Uh, it actually became an issue in the McNeil trial several years later as to whether Tex had actually said that, but, but if he didn't put it in those words, those words were probably a pretty fair representation of what he was saying and what, and what he meant. Well, you know, I always do, uh, kid gene and as you know dick he was a dear friend of mine as he was of yours and i yeah. was just to kid him for years that you know of all the stupid things you said that was the single smartest thing you ever said whether <laughs> he said it or not what a thing i mean he was like boom <laughs> there it all is right there in front of everybody you, you understood yeah. exactly what both sides were talking about yeah um, well gene had such a great way of kind of putting things distilling things into a few words or phrases Especially, especially when it came to communicating with the players, he he was a master at it, and uh, I, I chuckle and I smile at the recollection of things like that. <laughs> well, of course, during that strike, one of the things, and Goose and I have talked about this uh, uh, on the show. We've done several weeks of these um, kinds of stories about the strike, uh, and one of the things we talked about, of course, was the Chiefs became sort of famous or infamous for their. Militancy. Uh, I believe Bill Moss was one of the guys who showed up on the pick line the first day in the back of a pickup truck carrying a sh- shotgun, and Jack yep. Del Rio got in a wrestling match with uh, Otis Taylor on the picket yep. line and all of that. Um, were yep. you surprised that there weren't uh, – in a way, were you surprised that it, it went like that? Or, B, were you surprised that there weren't more incidents like that? And was it troubling to the union that – Well, you know, there was a lot of surprises uh, – you know, the, the, the psyche of the typical NFL player, I think we all kind of understand. It, it is that they, they're out on the field with, uh, you know, 53 other guys or on the, you know, prepared to be on the field with their teams. And when it, when it, when it becomes an us versus them uh, situation, they're, 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 they're great at banding together and, and doing whatever it takes. Imagine how, how a fan of, so many of these guys were, and uh, there were there were stories from all over the league uh, that yes surprised me a little bit uh, because a lot of them were extreme. But uh, on the other hand, you know, not so much because yep. these guys yep. are what they are. They're they're very proud men. They they work long and hard to become NFL players, and to, to see their professional status cheapened so much by what the owners were doing. Uh, I mean, it was an amazing time. It really was. It was, it was that, and unfortunately, we've quickly run out of time too quickly. I would have loved to keep uh, talking about this forever, Dick, because it's fascinating to me. And we look forward to reading your book uh, when it comes out. And one of these days, you and I will sit down and do an Uppy book. And that'll yeah, be something. That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks, nice Mike. to talk to you guys. Thanks, Dick. All right. We'll do it again. And that's, uh, that's a, the Talk of Fame Never. And we'll be back in just a minute or two. For our final two-minute You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That's the two-minute warning. That means we're just about at the end, so Ron, the ball, and the questions are yours. Let's start the clock on the final two minutes of the show. In his last eight games, friend of the show, Adrian Peterson, is averaging 2.28 yards a carry. 
Is he finished? He should be finished in New Orleans. The Saints don't need him. They've got Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara. They should cut him, let him go to the Giants or Cardinals where his legs might be of some help. Quick question. Are the Rams for real? Yes, indeedy. The Rams uh, have the most complete team in the NFC West, and when it's all said and done, they may have the best quarterback, too. Now a question I can't believe I'm asking. Are the Bills for real? If defense wins championships, they are. The Bills rank in the top ten in sacks, top five in takeaways, and in the top ten of fewest yards allowed. Bruce Smith would be proud. Speaking of the Hanson brothers, Bengals linebacker Kyle Lawson lost two teeth hitting Cleveland quarterback Deshaun Geyser Sunday. Is losing two teeth worth it to hit a Browns quarterback? If he's going to lose a tooth for every sack in the NFL career, no, it's not worth it. But if he keeps sacking quarterbacks, he'll make enough money in his career to buy a new set of choppers. <laughs> Giants coach Ben McAdoo is worried his 0-4 team may go numb. Is he a numbskull? The Giants, Giants are way past the stage of going numb. If I coach the Giants, I'd be more concerned with apathy than numbness. President Trump says NFL owners are afraid of their players. Would the NFLPA agree? On Sunday afternoons, they are at the bargaining table. Not so, and the NFLPA knows that. Is Deshaun Watson the quarterback answer in Houston? He's more of an answer at quarterback for the Texans than Bob Watson was as the first baseman of the Astros, and that's high praise. Wow. How on earth did Billy O'Brien conclude he should start Tom Savage over our friend Deshaun Watson? He learned his lessons well from Bill Belichick, whom, if you recall, Ron started... Drew Bledsoe ahead of Tom Brady. Hugh Jackson's 1-19 in his last 20 games coaching the Browns. Who goes first, Hugh or general manager Sashi Brown or baseball man Paul DePodesta? No one cares. It's still baseball season in Cleveland. Check back with me after the World Series. <laughs> That's the end of the game. We want to thank Les Sneed, Cyrus Mary, Dick Bertelson, and David Spader for joining us, Robert Harris for producing us, and you for listening. If you'd like to hear this or any of our podcasts, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or dial us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time, and on this station next week, we'll be here. We hope you will be here.